Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science. We'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today, I'd like to segment a rather meaty topic into pieces to make it a little more coherent, a little more so we can cobble together a big idea with smaller ideas. And I'll tell you a little bit about research. There's going to be plenty of research linked to this particular podcast after that. But we're going to go into something that is not particularly proven, but pieces of it are proven. And you put them together and you really have an interesting solution for, I think, a cultural, environmental, personal, human, medical condition. So we're going to talk about not just depression and various mental disorders, but we're going to put that in the context of a mitochondrial problem. So a mitochondrial dysregulation, a mitochondrial disorder. and to show you that there is that correlation. So that's pretty well established. And by the way, you may have recalled, oh, it was a couple of years ago, I interviewed Dr. Chris Palmer. And this was basically what we talked about was the strong overlap of those of diabetics and our obesity and diabetics, which I know is slightly different things. So we're going to call that a pre-diabetic, diabetic, the diabetic population, those who have a blood sugar problem. So we'll call that dysglycemia. Fancy word, don't get lost here. But between that population and the population that has major depressive episodes, that has schizophrenia, bipolar, obsessive compulsive, uh, putting all these together. So psychological, and I want you to be thinking of the brain. This is thinking about the brain and neurotransmitters and so on and so forth, all pretty straightforward, right? We haven't lost you so far. Right. Transmitters have to do with psychological disorders, we're assuming, and that's pretty much established. It's just not the sole thing. It's just like a symptom on the way, in my view. Some people call it more maybe documented sign of the disease or the disorder. And from that, we're going to see how we know that those who either binge eating, let me just jump into the, the hook of it here. Binge eating is associated a lot with depression. Not always. You can you can sit down and have a bag of Doritos, perish the thought. And I hope I didn't trigger any bad behaviors, and have that spike your blood sugar and spend the next twenty four hours of having your blood sugar come back down. Doritos, it's the poster child 
of a product devoid of any nutrition and full of calories and full of a lot of chemicals that make you want to eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it. Watch another movie, whatever you're doing, put it on your desk while you're working. You know, it is a the height of addictive food. It's a processed food, so it's a lot of stuff in there. You can't just say it's just one thing. In terms of just foods, the unprocessed things, the things that we know that are addictive before we start getting the chemicals that are engineered to make you want something more, that would be a dairy, specifically cheese, so casein, which we'll call it cheese, and gluten. So you put those together and you have a whole array of, what do you see? Pizza. You bet. You bet, baby. Pizza. So uh, cheese is really addictive. Pizza is really addictive. Think of your breads are really addictive. So what we have, before we even get into the process aspect, of course you can say cheese didn't come out of the cow. It had to be processed to get to cheese. Correct. It is moderately processed. And bread didn't come out of the wheat fields that way. It came out as a grain. Yes, the grains had to be processed. Correct. And one of the things that I've, we'll talk more about in the future and talk a little bit about in the past is that not only is gluten a problem, like a celiac disease and so on and so forth, but over the eons, certainly in the last 200 years, if not 150, it has been hybridized to be very, 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 very concentrated. So the wheat, quote unquote, wheat you eat today or that made your bread today, your wonder bread today, or maybe you're an at-home person that makes their own bread and feel really good about it. So that flour that you got, the use, you know, you're making whole grain flour and good for you. Well, that whole grain flour is probably a hundred times, if not a thousand times more concentrated in gluten than it was what they call the old grains back in 8,000 years ago where uh, agriculture got started and the Fertile Crescent and all that. So it really has been, become a super concentrated food in the genetics and the, in the breeding of it. So it's hybridized, hybridized, used to have seven chromosomes. Now it has what, 21, getting right up there with humans. Both of those have happened. When we talk about gluten now, we don't talk about this little molecule, one molecule will do this thing to you. We talk about a hyper concentration of this molecule, but a bigger dose of it. So anyway, there you go. Those are the carbs and those are the casein, and you know they're both addicting, but processed foods have taken this outrageously beyond that. Since the 60s, you know, they all the chemicals that are put in cigarettes are now put in the foods, apart from the tobacco and the tar, to make you want more. I mean, that was part of that whole industry is to make you want more. It wasn't just leaving it at nicotine and tar. It was all the other stuff. You had to look at it sometimes, but you didn't know licorice was put in most of your cigarettes. Not the licorice is addicting. It's meant for other reasons. So there's that. It's been engineered. So now you have hyped up food, and that's why you can eat Doritos that if you were to have the unadulterated, the unfixed bread that makes up Doritos, it's tasteless. It's merely a digestible carbohydrate. Pretty high gluten as well, but I don't think the gluten is that much of a trigger in this particular case. It's all the other stuff that's put into it. But you wouldn't really think that it's something really desirable to have. That's an example of that. But what I want to get to is that there is a thing. So the degree that you agree with me about carbohydrates can be addictive and the processed food can be even more addictive. 
What does that mean? Well, I want you now to jump to real basic neurotransmitterology. Neurotransmitterology is dopamine is about you wanting to do that thing more and more and more. You get a it's an anticipation. It's a it, it has its place for sure. It's a survival hormone neurotransmitter. And we want more of that. It makes us feel good. And then we get the serotonin side of things. My gosh, does that ever feel good? It's a little bit like I hate to say it, sex, you anticipate it, there's the dopamine, afterwards you have the serotonin. Everything's that way. So if you are a drug addict and you anticipate the drug you're going to have, or if you're a carb addict and you anticipate that incredible donut, you know, they have stores in California and Arizona, just three in the US, it's called a donut bar. The donuts are at least nearly a foot across, if not 10 inches across. I mean, they are artistic creations that are obviously very sugary and carbs and so on and so forth, but they are incredibly good looking to look at. And in this donut bar, the back wall is a beer bar, if you will. And and so you have all these beers. So call it a high carb bar. There's addictive and addictive. You guarantee to come out with a fatter belly should you have both of these. And they're very popular. When I was in um, San Diego, where they have one of these, the line was down the block and around the corner, and you had to wait there, probably probably waiting about three hours to get your selection of these big donuts. And people would come out with these stacks of them, you know, because they, they bought for their group, and they would come out as if they just bought a new puppy. They're just holding these things so dearly. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. My I got my donut bar donut, and I'm so happy. So talk about a, a, a dopamine rush just on that level. So you now know that addiction has to do with neurotransmitters. Got that part. So in order for neurotransmitters to operate successfully, you need to have a working brain. Pretty basic, right? Haven't lost you yet? Good. Well, you need certain neurotransmitters that, that not only are capable, uh, I should say, certain cofactors and nutrients and other things that line it up so you can make these neurotransmitters when you need them, and then also break them down when you don't need them, right? They don't stay around forever. It's not a one-way street. You make it for the instantaneous moment, the thing you're after, and then it's shut off. If you can uh, picture a child, might be yourself, certainly was me, hyperactive ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and it's often overlapping with autistic kids on the autistic spectrum. I myself, pretty severely dyslexic, don't advertise it much, but that's on the spectrum. So one side is dyslexia and the other side is severe autism in the middle and you have things like Asperger's and others. So in that overlap, all of those are pretty much hyperactive, whether they can control it or not. So what are one of the things that they can't control internally? It's the neurotransmitters production. They can't degrade, they can't break down the neurotransmitters. So they're locked into an overproduction and don't have an appropriate feedback. Okay, so now we're getting into perhaps genetic predisposition for people to overproduce, underproduce, not have not not have adequate regulatory process that they can keep up with. So if they're alive and they've lived, they obviously have an adequate amount, but when you give it a little stress, they produce too much and can't break it down and they get very buzzy. That's the ADHD or, you know, same with addiction with too much dopamine and so on. 
So you get that picture. So it's not so much that they have an inappropriate process, that is, they can't control it accurately and right to the nanosecond, but with a little stress to the situation, things start to fall apart. Things start to not get done completely or not get done at all. And so those are the individuals that when stress, quote unquote, stress is a big word, when it goes too far, they can't pull back and it gets too far. So what, what am I talking about? Well, what that means with neurotransmitters is that what happens is you actually have a separation, a separation of being able to communicate with the front part of your brain. So if you slap your forehead, that's your prefrontal, right? It's before your frontal or your optic prefrontal cortex. So that's all you're thinking. That's your reflecting. That's what they call your executive function. So executive functions are making major decisions in your life. It's reflecting on, is this really something that I want to do? Is this an ethical thing to do? Is this something that would benefit me and it's survival? However you want to look at it, it's that reflecting. I call it really thinking through a problem. That's where it happens. But as you get more and more addicted, driven by more Doritos or driven by more donuts or cheese and or even more processed stuff and or even drugs, whatever your addiction thing is, when you get more and more and more of that, you're overproducing and you can't pull back from that. You know, and it ends up being such a high level for so long, it starts to erode the connection, if you will. I'm kind of trying to make the picture easy. So you have a separation. So you'll notice addicts, whether you want to picture, and you don't want to put a little, you probably do not want to picture in your mind a child who has ADHD as being an addict, but they have a, well, I wouldn't call them an addict. I'm saying that they have a predisposition to very quickly not being able to reflect on their behavior. That's why they need to be put in timeout. Johnny, go sit in the timeout corner and think about your behavior. And then, then you can come back to the group or then you can come back to the dinner table or whatever it is. You are asking them to connect with their prefrontal cortex so they reflect on their behavior. Well, an addict can't do that. An addict is, I got to go get the next one. An addict functions from a lower, I wouldn't say reptilian part of the brain, but a lower mental functioning. I need what I need and I want it, period. That's it. No talking about of it. So my approach is, and others as well, if you go back to the conversation with Dr. Palmer, there's, there's roots of what we're talking about here in that conversation. And it's a wonderful, a wonderful conversation to listen to a couple times, I think, more than a couple times. So the roots of it, if we can take some of those triggers away, some of them are visual triggers and they take time. It doesn't happen just in one step. So if we can, if you're the, the carb person, and let me, let me stop at that point. If you are the carb person or the example that you're look, thinking of in your mind is a carb addiction person, what happens? Let's just play this out. A carb addictive person wants carbs. It could be donuts and Doritos. It could be chocolate cake. It could be name your thing. It could be pizza right? For all those other reasons. So they're getting it and they're having it. It is mostly carb addiction. Obviously, the cheese in terms of addictive food is not carb. It's actually a pretty high protein in that sense. But dairy in general is a equally high carb product as well. So they're having all the carbs. What is that? If you're having carbs on a regular basis, that forces your insulin to come out and go, whoa, we need to get this glucose down, right? You've been eating all those carbs, your glucose goes up, your insulin comes down. I said, we need to tap this down. We need to get back into normal levels. And so your insulin is having to come out more and more because you're eating more and more carbs because you're addicted 
right? You're overriding the feedback, so to say. And so now you have an ongoing, gradually elevated chronic level, chronic being day after day after day, if not month after month, if not year after year, if not decade after decade of you having this high level of insulin. Well, things start to shut down. Things start to shut down throughout the body. You know, pick your organ. We can talk about fatty liver and so on and so forth and pancreatic fatty pancreas. But let's go to the brain. What happens with when you have chronic, ongoing, elevated insulin is that the receptors to the brain that bring in insulin or in glucose, which is glucose is required in parts of the brain, begin to shut off. You know, if, if it's being flooded with insulin, it's saying we don't need that. So it starts to shut down the holes, if you will, starts to shut down the receptors. So you actually, in reaction to chronic elevated insulin in the brain, is now starting to, the brain automatically, on a per area basis, of course, is trying to lower the amount that comes in by shutting down the holes, if you will, shutting down the receptors. Okay, now that goes on week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. And you then have a brain that has so shut down its ability to take in glucose and be regulated by insulin that it starts starving. When you don't have the carbs, you know, you've taken an hour off or a couple hours off, it's famished. It can't go in. It can't feed itself. And the brain needs it all the time. The brain isn't like a muscle. Well, when, when you want to use my, this muscle, just give me some sugar and we're good to go. Your brain needs it all the time. So you can't have these off times. You can't have, well, that was, a bad, that was a bad sugar hour. That was a bad glucose hour. But no, you will start to damage your brain in that way. This is one road of why things like dementia and Alzheimer's is really called type 3 diabetes. You've, it's been exposed over a long period of time to sustained elevated levels of insulin, and it has caused that consequent change and then a damage to its ability to even use glucose because when it's not there, it's really empty. Okay, the other thing that happens is you have this, as I say, this inability to communicate to your thinking part of your brain, your frontal cortex, your prefrontal cortex. So all these things need to be undone. So obviously the biggest factor, the biggest variable in the room to talk about is the amount of time that this behavior has gone on. So children are easier to work with in the sense that they don't have decades of this kind of exposure. You can more readily identify, well, you know, we're not going to give little Johnny here Mountain Dew anymore. He just freaking climbs the wall. We're not doing that. Maybe we should just have give him water, a carbonated water. Maybe he'll be happy with that. Okay, so then you'll get a very quick change. And by the way, there's a movie out there called The Magic Pill. and it's kind of how there really isn't a magic pill, but it's in, based about the ketogenic diet, a low-carb diet, and they focus on one of their cases, if you will, they come back to is a little girl who I think she was autistic. I can't say that right now, but I think it's because I don't remember specifically, but it, it was an amazing change for her and also a big struggle to make that happen. Really played on the parents. I hope you see that, but you'll see you're still dealing with an addictive personality. She was addicted to goldfinches, you know, the Pepperidge Farm little, you know, they're pure carbs. And finally, they just had to abstain, have her daughter go through an essence cold turkey, go without 
it. And then she started coming around to have regular food, and she's a whole different person, a whole different animal, so to say. So where are we going with this? So now I said the big picture was that you had a lot of depressive disorders, mental disorders, a lot, you know, a number more than a few, uh, that overlapped with people who had dysglycemia, from full diabetics to pre-diabetics. And so this overlap is anywhere between 40 and 60%, given a condition we're talking about. That's a high overlap. That's a high correlation. And my guess is it's even higher for other particular conditions. So another aspect to look into this is that some people have a predisposition to not being able to manage elevated levels of glucose, elevated levels of insulin, they very quickly come to the damaging phase. They very quickly come to the addiction phase. So it's almost like a snap. You could say, well, they have a predisposition to being an addict. Well, in part they do, but it's only that they have a predisposition to becoming an addict or have an addictive personality when they are put in the context of a diet that is not supplying them or her the appropriate nutrition. So when they're not given the appropriate nutrition, which in my view are a whole whole foods, so apart from the keto part, you know, we're saying organic veggies, good cattle, uh, minimally injected with growth hormones and all the other stuff. You know, I was about to say free runs, grass fed. If you can get that, fine. But in that world of eating those kind of things, you don't have all these other mitigating problems, all these antagonistic toxins that add to the problem. So the idea is you pull back and you have food that gives you nutrition, they get nutrition, the personality changes. And that's the key. We now have grown up over, I think we're now a couple generations into the processed food aspect of our lives. Some people even ask, how can I do keto on processed foods? I'm not interested in helping that person. I'll tell them, I don't know. It never worked for me. It never worked for anybody I could say, even though Amazon is flooded with all these products, keto this, keto that, even the grocery stores now, as you probably well know. So the whole food is your is your base camp, is your base camp. If you can stay around that, you're not going to get into all these other problems. But as the individual, for whatever reason, was born into an environment of processed foods and so on and so forth, that begins the process of they're not getting enough to restore their receptors to produce and break down their neurotransmitters, and it adds to that problem. So I say there is a subset of people, and I would say that for all those diabetic, pre-diabetics, those who had dysglycemia and had some sort of major depressive episode, a major depressive disorder, that's an actual condition, bipolar, schizophrenia, obsessive-compulsive disorders, uh, severe depression, kind of redundant. Those I would love to see some genomic work just around the concept of methylation. And maybe there's about 10 particular SNPs to look at. But way back since I was lecturing at a pharmacy school in the mid, was it 2005 and six in Boston, at U, uh, UMass Boston, that we were looking at these things. And the problem is there's even another layer on top of this would make these kind of people really quickly get into these kind of disorders. So the first we talked about dietary, right? The carbs and so on and so forth. And then we talked about there's a group that have a predisposition they can't manage the production of and or the breakdown of because they're missing what they need. They're a little more vulnerable. And the third level is 
medications. And you could even put in some supplements in this regard too, though I can't think of any right now, but certain medications like uh, proton pump inhibitors, metformin, things that they naturally take for their condition. Nexium or Prilosec uh, proton pump inhibitors for heartburn. Well, that keeps you from absorbing B12. That's going to make your particular mental disorder even more exaggerated. When you look at the correlation of B12 deficiency and folic acid deficiency in these particular conditions, it is there. It is absolutely there. So now they're taking a medication because they've been advised to do that that could flip them into schizophrenia and they've never been there before. And it didn't happen as soon as they took their first pill. It might happen a week later, a month later, a couple months later when their level of B12 and folic acid falls so low that they are in a desperate, for them, right? They're, these are the people that have that predisposition, they're the more vulnerable. So this is a subset of people that can't take these things because they're quickly going to be very problematic. I have one story is that, oh, back, we're in 2021 right now, back in I think 2006 or seven, I was uh, in my practice in Lyme, Connecticut, and I was working with an adult male in his mid-twenties who was living at home with his parents, and his parents said, we're at the end of our rope, you know, he's on these antidepressive medications, and we're seeing various doctors at Yale, and is there anything that you could do? Well, the world was a little less sophisticated then, if you could imagine, in the sense of looking for any sort of genomic correlations. But as I did with everybody else, I said, well, the first thing we're going to do, regardless of what the condition is, we're going to get the processed food out of their diet. So we started just focusing on getting that out. It's become actually a much more important variable to deal with, but we were dealing with, we were doing it back then. We even had classes we would make dinner for everybody, classes at night, and we'd do a PowerPoint while they're eating appropriate foods. Back then, I was into whole grains and so on. So it was, as I said, pre-keto, pre-low carb. But even that was a, just getting the processed foods out of your diet is a big deal. Well, this kid had a personality change. He suddenly was calm and he was constructive and he wanted to go back to school. He was going to get his next degree in whatever what he was doing. And uh, he was dropping weight. And I think I do remember he was, uh, that was, well enough along with the whole SNP, singular nuclear polymorphism ability that I had asked for is MTHFR and maybe one or two others. We didn't know that many other SNPs back then. It was a pretty single story to talk about. And we gave them a little more folic acid, B12, but mostly it's like got the processed food out. And so he did great. You know, it was like a whole new kid under this. He starts going back and studying and then he started going to work out as well. And in the gym, he met people that had these special foods to help him really lose weight and build muscle, and there were all these packaged foods. So he started ordering these packaged foods unbeknownst to his parents. Remember, he's living at home. He went wacko. He just flipped out, got angry and buzzy, and he couldn't turn it off, and he couldn't sleep for days. And so finally, he gets into his parents' car, and he drives down 120 miles an hour on 95, if you know Connecticut at all. It's the one highway. Along the bottom goes pretty much east to west, or west to east in this case. And the cops had to follow him and chase him 120 miles an hour in the highway at night. And they chased him all the way over to the emergency room. And he wanted to, and he was banging on the emergency room that was closed at that time of night, that uh, he wanted to be put into the area, uh, the psychiatric treatment area. It's called the Pond House. 
He obviously didn't get in because they were closed. The cops surrounded him, gunpoint. So that's how he freaked out. So that's how I look at processed foods. That kind of reaction is in all of the people who have a predisposition. They have a vulnerability. And processed foods accentuates that immediate addiction. So little did he know, even though he was doing such great work on himself, he thought maybe he'll take it that one edge further, as people often do when you see them in the gym as well. Look at all their energy drinks and super this and super that and, you know, totally unnecessary in my view. Okay, so there's that. So what I'm saying is when you drop the carbs, as for everybody, regardless of what the addiction is, whether it's crack, opium, heroin, opiates in general, alcohol, get the carbs out. Get the carbs out. Get them down as low as you possibly can. Make sure you get the protein up so it's adequate. And when you start that, you will start a transition. It doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen in a week. Give it a month. And we have to reverse that time. It will happen quickly. More, It will happen more quickly for the younger those people are and for the the shorter period of time that person has been exposed to whatever that addictive thing is. So that's a big deal. And then you can bring in another level of look at genomic side of things. Um, and I do believe there is a strong place for moderate supplementation. And at the very least, you look for B12 and folic acid deficiencies or borderline. There's ways to do that intercellularly. There's ways to do that in serum, though they're not as good. And get going. At least you have a place to begin, which will, for these particular, this set of people, will make a huge difference. I mean, you'll be changing their dysglycemia, right? You'll be changing their blood sugar problem, i.e. prediabetes, diabetes, um, even um, hypoglycemia as well, by the way. And so you'll be changing that. You'll be changing their moods. You'll be changing their brain function. So I hope you got the gist of this. Try to keep it kind of in small pieces as we went through. Let me read you just something a little medicalese at the beginning of an article that I would has read. So it's, I think I changed, it said brain insulin resistance and major depression. And this was from April 2019. And it goes this way. Patients with type 2 diabetes are two to three times more likely to have depression than those without diabetes. In addition, 40 to 60% of other people with depression exhibit glucoregulatory mechanism disruptions, meaning they have dysglycemia. They could have done it to one word. That increases the risk of di- for diabetes. This depression-diabetes relationship may hold answers to the treatment of both conditions. However, the exact pathophysiologic and molecular mechanisms if you're going to, that'd be nice if we knew that. We're never going to know that. How about we deal with what we can do? But anyway, it says we don't know that or any underlying the relationship to further exploration with brain insulin resistance sparking much research. So it's about the brain insulin resistance. Having too much exposure to insulin for too long causes damage, as I talked about before. And so that particular article was written where it says research data shows environmental factors. And what are environmental factors? Environmental factors are food, are environmental toxins. That's it. That's environmental factors. Rather than genetics play a role in affecting type 2 diabetes and depression as a comorbidity, meaning going together in middle-aged patients. And what I would say in terms of genetics, yeah, there might not be a genetics to diabetes, but there is a genetic predisposition, and what we just talked about today, to addiction. Addiction brings you to diabetes by having you consume the things that 
lead into carbs, lead into diabetes. Okay, that's it for today. I hope that was helpful. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.